Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We do have an empty seat here. We have two empty seats right here because Brennan McGuire is about to stand up. There you go. Thanks, guys. Thank you. As Sapino said, this is the beginning of our three-part series on the Crusades, which if I get long-winded, it might turn into a four-part series on the Crusades. <laughs> then you have to give 200 a month. And, you, know, <laughs> you get what you pay for. Anyway, sorry. Um, I also will be passing a hat just for me. So, I mean, <laughs> but, yeah. so the, uh, the Crusades. Now, we're all familiar with some kind of basic concept of the Crusades, right? Just this is how it, I think it's usually good to start. You know, when you're introducing people to the crusade, to a real scholarly understanding of the crusades for a first for the first time, is to start with what our popular understanding of the crusades is. Now, the popular understanding of the crusades. What do I what do I mean by popular? When I say a popular understanding of the crusades, I'm talking about what we often see portrayed in the media, what we often see portrayed in popular books on the subject. You know, the kinds of glossy, soft cover books that you see if you go to Borders or something like that. Um, movies, entertainment, uh, casual references in the news media, these types of sources, they all give us a certain picture of the Crusades. Right? And the picture that they give us is one that is usually intended to discredit the church and the civilization of the West. The picture of the Crusades that we're often given is that the Crusades are uh, kind of an example of how the church in the Middle Ages and society in the Middle Ages, Christian society in the Middle Ages, was an intolerant thing. Right? And Christian society in the Middle Ages was so intolerant that they weren't satisfied with the opportunities for intolerance available to them at home. Right? <laughs> they had to travel thousands of miles to go be intolerant to people far away. Right? <laughs> this is how intolerant Christian society was. Yeah, this, is, this is often how it's portrayed. Right? They put an enormous amount of effort into traveling across a, a thousand miles of open sea, a very perilous journey to the Middle East, to Muslim lands, to attack innocent Muslims, unsuspecting people, sack their cities, rape their women, burn their possessions, seize the booty, and uh, create a little colony over there. Right? And this is this depiction that we often see, as crudely as I've thus just expressed it, right? uh, this is a depiction of the Crusades that, that has roots in the intellectual kind of rejection of Christianity that took the West by storm in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Right? In other words, this is a construction of the Crusades that dates back to the time of the Enlightenment. The Crusades as engines of medieval Christian intolerance. Right? And so it's, it's kind of a historically conditioned false understanding of the Crusades. Now that having been said, I think in the limited time that we have, we don't really have time to go into the development of understandings of the Crusades. Let's just go into the history. Let's take a step back and give ourselves some historical context that will help us to understand what the Crusades were, why they arose, and what motivated the people who participated in them. Now, to take a very long view of history here can be necessary. What we really have to do is take a long view of the history of the Mediterranean. Now, in the modern world, 
we have a certain conception of the Mediterranean Sea, right, geographically speaking. We think of the Mediterranean as a barrier between two different civilizations. Right? We think of the Mediterranean as a kind of a dividing line that separates the kind of post-Christian civilization of Europe from the Islamic civilization of North Africa and the Middle East. Right? Now, it's important for us to realize that the Mediterranean in the past never played that role. Right? In point of fact, from the time of the Roman Empire, right, the Mediterranean was not a dividing line at all between two rival cultures. The Mediterranean was kind of the central focal point of a single united civilization that was both Roman, Hellenistic, and it was also Christian. Right? So what we have to realize is that the um, Islamic possession of lands in North Africa and the Middle East is something that actually took place at a certain point in history. It wasn't always the case, right? Prior to Islam taking possession of North Africa and the Middle East, North Africa and the Middle East were deeply Christian. Now, you might, we might have this conception that North Africa and the Middle East were, in fact, on the periphery of the Christian world, right? That's the sense that we all have, because that's the way they are today. I mean, Christian communities in North Africa and the Middle East are small, embattled communities. But what we tend to forget is that these communities are remnants of what once was a great, flourishing Christian civilization. We tend to forget not only that North Africa and the Middle East were you know, not the periphery of the Christian world, they were the heart of the Christian world. Right? Where did monasticism originate? Monasticism originated in Christian Egypt. Right? Where was the greatest theology being done in the middle, in, sorry, in late antiquity? Where was the greatest theology being done? It was being done in Syria and Anatolia, modern-day Turkey and, and modern-day Syria and Lebanon, right? Where did Christ live? Christ lived and walked in Jerusalem, right? Now, what we might not realize is that for medieval Christians, the memory of a united Mediterranean, a united Christian Mediterranean with Jerusalem at the center, was not something that they had lost. Right? Medieval Christians in both East and West were conscious that the Mediterranean, by all rights, ought to be united. The lands around the Mediterranean were, all, by all rights, Christian. Right? And therefore, they tended to regard Islamic possession of those lands as some, uh, some variant of theft. Right? In other words, they saw the, the sudden Islamic conquests that had occurred kind of rapidly in the 7th century AD, where the Muslims kind of sprang out of nowhere from the desert of the Arabian Peninsula and seized, almost overnight it seemed, they're able to seize Syria, Egypt, Palestine, uh, penetrate into Anatolia, cover all of North Africa, and Spain, for that matter. Right? The result of this was that in the Middle Ages, the Christian world was kind of a shell of its former self. The Christian world was very conscious that it was a tiny remnant of what it once had been, a tiny embattled remnant. Right? So what we have to do is we have to dispense with this 18th and 19th century nonsense, which sees the Crusades as uh, some kind of example of the expansionistic, imperialistic West dominating over poor, innocent peoples in the Middle East. Quite the contrary wasn't, was the case, in fact. In terms of military and political power, the Christian world in the Middle Ages was far, lagging far behind the Islamic world. Culturally, politically, in every other way, we can sort of see the, the medieval West as kind of the third world right, of the Middle Ages. This wasn't the imperialistic, domineering West of the 18th and 19th century. This was an embattled remnant 
of Christian civilization, only maybe one-fourth the size of what Christian civilization had once been in geographical terms. Right? So let's take a look at how things are shaping up politically in the Middle Ages on the eve of the Crusades. Obviously, you're going to have to pardon my maps. My maps, I always tell my students, my maps are schematics. <laughs> They're not geographically accurate. You have, let's see, some version of North Africa down here. There's Egypt. Over here is Palestine. Anatolia. Up there, we'll say Greece is maybe here. Italy extends down there. Right? And Spain is over here. All right. So at one end of the Mediterranean up here, we have, what, the medieval west. All right. Here's our little dividing line. Down here, we have... Islam. Over here we have Islam. Over here we have Islam. And what do we have over here? What do, you have, what do we have in this area here? Byzantine. Right, we have the Byzantine Empire. Now the Byzantine Empire had suffered tremendously okay, in the initial Islamic conquest of the 7th century AD. The Byzantine Empire had lost all of its lands in Syria, in Palestine, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and North Africa. Right. So the Byzantine Empire had, had lost the vast majority of its territory in the 7th century. Nevertheless, it had retained a couple of very important chunks. It had retained Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. Right. It had also retained Greece. The more crucial land for the Byzantine Empire was Anatolia. Why? Well, for two reasons. One is Anatolia was where they got most of their food from. Anatolia was the breadbasket of the Byzantine Empire. Secondly, Anatolia was also a very important recruiting ground for soldiers for the Byzantine army. So the Byzantine Empire, say roughly around the year 1000 or so, during the reign of Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer, the Byzantine Empire is depending very heavily on Anatolia for its survival, like both in terms of food and in terms of military recruits. So Anatolia is very important. Now. There's going to be a political change in the Islamic world around the year 1000 that paves the way for the Crusades. And that is this. Um, the Islamic world, as you know, in our minds, the Islamic world is kind of synonymous with the Arab world, right? Right? And indeed, so it was. Right? The, the Muslims who conquered the Middle East and North Africa and threatened Christian, you know, Christian territory, they were Arabs. However, these Muslim Arabs were themselves conquered in the 10th century by somebody else. Someone said Turks. Yeah, they're conquered by Turks. Right? Now the interesting thing is that as the Turks conquer the Muslim Arab world, right, the Turks themselves adopt Islam. So the Turks adopt the Islamic religion while they conquer the Arab world. And in point of fact, it almost seems that the Turks adopt a more fanatical form of the Muslim religion than the people that they're conquering. So a very interesting thing happens in around the year 1000 when the Turks take possession of Jerusalem. All right, uh, there's a Turkish sultan in the year 1009 who actually orders the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to be destroyed. Right. And so in the 11th century, rumors start to reach the West and Byzantium that the Turks are going to change the game, politically speaking. Not only are the, Turk, are the Turks going to change the game within the Islamic world by showing less tolerance for Christians than had previously been practiced by the Arabs, right? they're also going to change the game in a geopolitical sense. And that, that turns out to be correct. In the year 1071, 
the Turks made an aggressive push into Anatolia. And they fought a battle at a place called Manzikert in central Anatolia in 1071 against the great Byzantine emperor, Romanus IV. And the battle was a disaster for the Byzantines. The Turkish army came in and smashed the hastily assembled amateur Byzantine army that Romanos was able to put together. And right across the battlefield, strewn as it was with bodies, there lay what? The fertile plains of Anatolia. So in 1071, what happens to the Byzantine Empire is not just the catastrophic destruction of one of its armies, but the loss of half of its remaining territory, and the most important half by far, that is Anatolia. So as we're getting towards the end of the 11th century, in the 1070s and 1080s, it becomes very clear that, in fact, the Byzantine Empire is in grave, grave danger of being entirely swallowed up by Turks. It's a tiny rump remnant of its former self. In, in point of fact, in the 1080s, you could actually be living in Constantinople, the ancient capital of Byzantium. Look out your window, look across the straits, and see Turks. Right. So things are grave for Byzantium in the 1080s. Now, if things are grave for Byzantium, how's, how's the West feel about that? Nervous. Pretty nervous, right? Any intelligent observer in the West is feeling nervous in the 1080s because the Byzantine Empire has always, to this point, served as a kind of a bulwark, right, defending southeastern Europe from an Islamic advance. Byzantium had been besieged by Muslims several times. They were besieged in the 680s. Uh, then the, there was a spectacular siege in 717 and 718 where the, the army of the, the um, Umayyad general Maslama besieged Constantinople with 100,000 men. Right? They were supported by 2,200 ships. And they failed. They failed because of two things. They failed because of Constantinople's walls that defended it on the land side, and because of Constantinople's military technology on the sea. You've all heard of Greek fire. Right? Greek fire was this spectacularly destructive weapon that Byzantium used. As a matter of fact, out of those 2,200 ships that Maslama had with him at Constantinople, guess how many of them made it back to Syria? Four. So, so Constantinople has this record of centuries of standing in the way of Islamic advance. Now we're talking about the Turks. Uh, we're talking about a people who really for centuries haven't lost a major battle. By the 1080s, the Anatolia is just, it, it's at the edge of the Turkish Empire. The Turkish Empire, if, if you were to look at it on the map in the 1080s, say during the reign of Malik Shah I, around 1085 or so, it would cover not only Anatolia, not only Syria, Palestine, but also the Iranian plateau, all the way to Transoxania. It would cover the Caucasus. It would cover you know, modern-day um, Tajikistan and places like that, far, far to the east, all the way to the borders of China. Right. So in other words, the Turkish Empire is this mighty thing, and the Turks are these apparently indestructible warriors. Right. And so if you're the Byzantine Emperor in the 1080s, you're sitting there looking at the situation, and you're feeling a little bit queasy, right, to say the least. So fortunately for the Byzantines, they end up with a very competent emperor in the 1080s and 1090s. It was a guy named Alexius. Okay. Alexius I, the first emperor of the, of the Komnenos dynasty, realized that in order to fend off these Turks who were threatening his empire's existence, um, 
he was going to have to employ a little bit of unconventional political strategy, and that was he was going to have to ask the West for help. Okay. Now, this is not a choice that Alexius would make lightly. We, we should impress that upon ourselves. In point of fact, uh, Alexius himself had had to not only fend off Turks in the east, he also, a lot of the time, he was all fighting Normans and things like that in the west. So for Alexius I to turn to the west for help is not a decision that, that he would take lightly, but he realizes that it's his really the only alternative left to him based on what the geopolitical situation is. Uh, so if you're the Byzantine emperor in the late 11th century, who in the west do you get on the phone with uh, if you want a big army, right? Who, who, who are you texting? Right. The Pope, right? Now, why the Pope? Because he had military might as well as... Did he have military might of his own, really? He had his own army. Not too much. Not, he didn't really have... Now, here's the thing. Alexius, Alexius seemed to think that he did. Alexius was under the impression that if he got on the phone with the Pope, the Pope could just like send a papal army over or something. It turned out it didn't quite work that way. But you're right, the Pope, um, in a very real sense, was the head of all Europe in the later 11th century. And, it, it, and this is why it's such a unique moment. Because the thing is, if you, had, if you had asked the Pope for an army in the 10th century, you probably wouldn't have gotten one. If you ask the Pope for an army in the 14th century, you're certainly not going to get one. Right? But it just so happened to be the case that in the late 11th century, right when the Byzantine Emperor needed help the most, the Pope was at the, the papacy, I should say, the office of the papacy, was kind of at the apex of its prestige in the West. Right? And there's a reason for that. The, the history of the 11th century papacy is a troubled one. The history of the 11th century papacy is a history of popes battling for supremacy within Western Europe against secular rulers, German emperors, and things like that. But the thing is, the popes win right, in the 11th century. In the 11th century, the popes clearly emerge in the 1070s and 1080s as, in effect, the moral, spiritual leaders of Europe. Right? The pope could serve as the voice of Europe in the later half of the 11th century in a way that he wouldn't be able to later on. Right? Now, the reasons for that, it has to do, to a certain extent, with the political circumstances of Western Europe in the 11th century. Um, when we think of medieval kings, right, we tend to think of powerful, despotic figures. Right? For uh, school children, always think of kings this way, especially a medieval king. They think, oh, a king can just say, off with his head, right? and get things done. Kings are despots and autocrats. In point of fact, when we think of that type of king, we're thinking really more of a 16th or 17th century king. Right? A king in the Middle Ages is a much less powerful figure. And this is why the popes were able to unite Europe in the 11th century. Because the, the political structure in the 11th century, it kind of worked something like this. If you were a king, say the king of France, okay, you would directly control only a very small piece of territory. Right? Your word is law, maybe within about an area the size of the District of Columbia. Right? The rest of France, who rules the rest of France? Yes. Nobles, right? Yes. Vassals who are subject to you. Now, can you tell them what to do and have them do it? 
Not really. <laughs> right? The 11th century is, is an age of political decentralization in kingdoms. Right? In point of fact, the most powerful individuals in France in the 11th century are either Dukes of Normandy or uh, Counts of Toulouse or people like that. In point of fact, the Count of Toulouse, Raymond, in the late 11th century, he had much more land and much more direct power than any king of France did at the time. Right? So this is good. The fact that we're talking about an age of weak kings and strong nobles is very, very good for the papacy, right? Because it's, it's easy in this type of environment for the popes to emerge as the single leaders of Western Europe, right? Now, later on, the part, uh, one reason to which we'll attribute the decline of the crusading movement is that later on in the 13th and 14th centuries, kings get much more powerful the result of this growth of the power of kings in the, in the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries is that the crusading movement can no longer work the way it used to because the rise of kings equals a corresponding decline for the papacy. Right. But at this point, right when Alexius Comnenus needs help the most, the popes happen to be kind of at the apex of their power. Now, the one pope that, that Alexius kind of first gets in contact with is Pope Gregory VII. Um, pope Gregory VII is unable to really really get things going because he kind of puts the word out among nobles in the West, hey, if anyone wants to go and fight as a mercenary for Alexius Comnenus, feel free. Right? <laughs> and no one's really too enthusiastic about that. Right? Gregory VII, however, was the inspiration behind a reform of the knightly class that would pave the way for the crusading movement later. Gregory VII, in point of fact, was um, directly responsible for a lot of ecclesiastical legislation that governed the knightly class. And the purpose of this legislation was to try to have the knights devote their martial energy and spirit towards appropriate goals, towards pious goals. And so some of these rules were uh, like no fighting private duels on church land. No. Uh, no killing people on Sundays. <laughs> right. We get things like that. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds kind of basic and simple to us. But, but what's going on here is the church is molding uh, a still semi-barbarized knightly class, molding them into Christian knights. Right? And so th these people, th these savage people, the these Western Christian knights of the Middle Ages, um, are certainly capable of great violence. They're certainly men of war, men of iron. They're not soft, feminized, modern men. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but they're also men of great piety. Right? They're also men of great piety. So these men are, just as, as they're capable of fighting, just as they're capable of taking life, so too they're capable of putting their lives on the line. So too they're capable of great physical and financial sacrifice right, for the cause of Christ, if the opportunity is presented to them properly. Right? And so Gregory VII really wasn't able to um, be a good, I guess to be a good marketer for this idea. He didn't have the idea fully worked out. But one of his successors, who was also a contemporary with Alexius I, um, did a better job. And this was Pope Urban II. Urban II was Pope from 1088 to 1099. And Pope Urban II kind of came up with a brilliant fusion of different concepts that already existed 
in the medieval West. He looked at the knightly class in the medieval West and he said, look, these men are pious, they love Christ, they're devoted especially to relics. Right. Relics were one of the most important um, objects of devotion and veneration in the Middle Ages. Going along with this devotion to relics is a devotion to certain pious practices, and in particular, the practice of pilgrimage. So he looks at these men, he sees an existing devotion to relics and to pilgrimage in the culture. A lot of this stuff coming out of the reforms of Gregory VII. Okay. So he looks at that, and, and ultimately what's behind this devotion to relics and a devotion to pilgrimage on the part of the knightly class, it is a genuine sense that the spiritual benefits that the relics offer them and that pilgrimages offer them, that those spiritual benefits are worth pursuing, often at great cost. So Urban looks at this, and what he decides to do, it's, it's a completely kind of brilliant and innovative idea, is he decides to link together the concept of war with the concept of pilgrimage. Right? And that's what produces crusade. So what Urban II did was this. After discussing it with Alexius, um, and he actually received emissaries of uh, the Emperor Alexius at Piacenza in Italy in 1095. After talking to Alexius's emissaries where they said, look, things are really bad uh, in the East. Constantinople's about to get conquered by the Turks. Uh, he, he decided to go on a kind of a preaching tour. Now, Urban II was, among other things, a Frenchman, uh, which we can forgive him for, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but he was a great Frenchman, and so he decided the best place to go on his preaching tour to promote this idea of crusade was France. Right. So he leaves Piacenza, leaves this council that they were having, and goes to France and goes from town to town the Pope himself now, we're talking, going from town to town in France and preaching to clerics, right, whom he is in turn encouraging to go out and spread this message to the knightly class. And the message is something very particular, and that is this. Christians in the East are suffering. Christians in the East are suffering at the hands of Turks. Right? And so it is, it is our duty as Christian brothers to liberate them from their suffering. But even worse, even worse than perhaps than our Christian brothers suffering in the East, is the fact that relics are undergoing desecration. And in particular, the greatest relic of them all, the city of Jerusalem. So he says to them, look, the former lands of the Byzantine Empire have been carved up by these animals. Okay. And what are they doing to Christians there? While they desecrate the relics and these things, what are they doing? Well, I'm just going to read you one quote, if you'll bear with me. This is a quote from Urban's speech, as it's recounted by a chronicler named Robert the Monk. And what Urban apparently told them was this. Okay. He told them, The Turks have completely destroyed some of God's churches, and they have converted others to the uses of their own cult. They ruined the altars with filth and defilement, they circumcise Christians and smear the blood from the circumcision over the altars or throw it into the baptismal fonts. They are pleased to kill Christians by cutting open their bellies, extracting the end of their intestines and tying it to a stake. Then with flogging, they drive their victims around the stake until when their viscera have spilled out, they fall dead on the ground. They tie others again to stakes and shoot arrows at them. They seize others, stretch out their necks, and try to see whether they can cut off their heads with a single blow of a naked sword. 
And what shall I say about the shocking rape of women? So for medieval Christian knights, these are stories to make the blood boil. Yes? Were those, in fact, accurate descriptions of what was happening? They're definitely accurate descriptions of what Urban is hearing. Um, let's put it this way. Undoubtedly, a lot of this stuff did go on. Was it completely systematic? Was it going on all the time? Probably not. Right. But there's all kinds of stories that you get in the 11th century about what the Turks do to you if you try to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, what happened was after the Turks destroyed the Holy Sepulcher in, uh, in 1009, they decided to allow it to be rebuilt so that they could have pilgrims come in from the West and charge them, uh, charge them money and use it as a source of profit. So the Turks were doing this, say, in, in the 1040s, 1050s, 1060s, and there are Norman chronicles that describe what some of these great Norman knights did when they went to go on pilgrimage when the Turks are in charge of the Holy Sepulcher. And one of the um, kind of repeated leitmotifs is that they were, um, they were forced to urinate on the Holy Sepulcher by the Turks. And so there's these great stories in the Chronicles of a knight would come in and it would show how the, the intelligent knight would fool the silly Turks. Uh, and he would come in and he would um, hide a, a, a full wineskin between his, his legs. Uh, under his robe, and he'd kind of walk in and just like squeeze the wineskin, and it would go, and, and, ah, you know, I fooled the silly Turks, right? Uh, so, I mean, clearly there's some weird stuff going on here with the Turks, and these stories of torture and, and things like that, they're not false, they are happening. Are they happening systematically or, or all the time? Probably not. That's, that's what I say. Yes? You know, maybe I misheard, but I thought perhaps you misspoke. Did you say that the Pope ordered the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre? No, the Turks. The Turks. The Turks. I thought that's what it should be, but I thought. Did I say the Pope? So, no. No, no, you said the Turks. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. How did the schism of 1054 enter into this process? Well, the schism of 10... Okay, the question is about the split between the Eastern and Western churches. The question is, how did the split between the Eastern and Western churches affect the fact that the Eastern emperor is asking for help from the Western pope? The answer to that question is very interesting um, because Alexius actually, uh, when he was talking to Urban, Urban sent him, uh, wrote a letter to Alexius and said... Um, are, are we in schism with one another? And Alexius wrote back and said, I don't know, are we? And, uh, and Urban said, I don't know. <laughs> and so then, then Urban said, I don't know, well, do you guys commemorate me at the altar? And Alexius said, I don't know. <laughs> so, let me ask. So, so Alexius went and asked the, uh, the patriarch, do you guys commemorate Pope Urban at, at, during the liturgy? And the patriarch said, no. And then Alexius wrote back and he said, yeah, we don't commemorate you. Does that mean there's a schism? And the Pope said, I don't know. <laughs> so basically, the, the events of 1054 are pretty hazy in everyone's minds. And the implication of those events is also pretty hazy. Uh, in other words, it's not at all clear that people have a kind of rigid idea that there's a schism right now. Uh, people think, well, maybe our relationship isn't quite what it should be. But there isn't a very clear idea that we split in 1054 and that's it. In fact, going back and identifying 1054 as the date of the schism, quote unquote, isn't something that people start doing until much later on. Uh, I mean, I'm of the school of thought that you can't really speak of a, a solidified schism until the 15th century, really, until after the Council of Florence, uh, when you get the rejection of the Council of Florence and, and then the, the Turkish conquest of Constantinople. It's only then that you really 
that schism. So, uh, the, the excommunications of 1054 were excommunications of individual men, in point of fact. Uh, cardinal Humbert, the Western Cardinal, excommunicated the Patriarch and his Chancellor. Uh, but the, it turns out that the, the Western Cardinal who issued this excommunication didn't have the authority to do so because the Pope in whose name he was speaking had died. And he knew that the Pope had died, and he still did it anyway. And so, you know, the, so the, you're talking about excommunications that are of very dubious validity to begin with. And, uh, you know, in the 1080s and, and 1090s, people don't really care that much. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. But a lot of them take it in word back and forth in just a couple of months. Oh, it's... You guys speak up because the people here have had the air conditioner. Oh, okay, I apologize. Uh, the question is, how long does it take to get a message back and forth across the Mediterranean? Uh, the answer is, it, it doesn't take a few months. It's more a matter of weeks going by ship. Uh, we're, we're dealing with an age where um, high-speed travel is always by ship. Uh, in point of fact, it's been pointed out that to go by, to go by sail uh, from, say, London to, um, oh, I don't know, Bordeaux or something like that, uh, actually takes a lot quicker than it would to go from London to... Edinburgh or something, you know, overland. Overland travel is very slow. Travel by sea is very fast. So if you send messages by sea, it's you know a couple weeks each way or something like that. Uh, so the the situation that we have then, when Urban II issues this summons to the Knights of Europe, is a very interesting situation. In fact, kind of the, the granddaddy um, meeting that he has on his whole preaching tour, very famous. Council. It occurs at Clermont, the French city of Clermont, which is modern-day Clermont-Ferrand in the Bourbonnais. But Clermont-Ferrand today has a communist mayor, which is really annoying. Yeah. Um, but you, you can still see the 11th-century castle though, if you go there. It's pretty cool. Um, so Urban goes to Clermont and he holds this conference. This is um, November of 1095, and this is where he issues his great proclamation. Right. It's kind of the culmination of his whole preaching tour. And what he says is this. It's a very particular juridical thing. Right? That those who take a vow to go and liberate Jerusalem right, by the sword will receive, upon completion of their pilgrimage, the full remission of their sins. Right? In other words, all the benefits that are available to pilgrims are going to be available to these guys. So this is a pilgrimage in a very real sense. Right? So the spiritual benefit that's offered, the remission of all your sins, then becomes the single most powerful motivating factor to get knights to sign up for this thing. Right? And this is, in point of fact, the way that modern scholarship has swung. You know, for years and years, the assumption was that what motivated the Crusaders was some kind of greed for material things, some kind of greed for profit or the desire to steal some land in the Middle East and, and you know, get a little estate for yourself over there or something like that. But more recent scholarship has debunked that attitude completely, uh, and with good reason, with good historical common sense reasoning. Um, the old theory was that the, primarily the, the knights who'd be interested in, in responding to this type of opportunity, right, opportunity to go to the East, uh, would be who, people who didn't inherit in a state of their own in the West. Second sons, it's the famous second son theory. Right? This was a theory that lasts well into the 20th century, the idea that the Crusaders were primarily these cast-offs and ne'er-do-wells who had no wealth of their own and therefore had an economic motive to go to the Middle East and try to carve out a little a plot of land for themselves. So in other words, we're taking a kind of a 19th century colonial model 
right, and putting it back into the Middle Ages. Um, this view was challenged directly by the greatest living scholar of the Crusades, most prolifically published living scholar of the Crusades, who is Jonathan Riley Smith at Cambridge. Uh, and he just retired, in point of fact, but I, I met Jonathan Riley Smith about two, oh, two years ago. And um, he's a devout Catholic. Uh, he's kind of like, you know, just big, roly-poly Englishman and a really good guy. But as far back as the 60s, Jonathan Riley Smith was arguing that it made no sense uh, to assert that those who went on crusade were motivated by a desire for greed. And his argument was based on something called prosopography. Now, you guys know prosopography? Or, uh, no, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's like a little inside word, yeah. Prosopography means uh, the study of history based on creating databases of actual individuals who participated in something like a crusade. Okay, so, and the reason you could do this in the 60s was because there was this brilliant new invention in the 60s. Uh, a punch card computer. Right? <laughs> so now, you, you, we think of a punch card computer as this joke today, right? But at the time, it was th this new thing, and it, it actually had the, uh, the processing power to crunch a lot of data. So what Riley Smith did was he went through uh, these charters, medieval charters, that the knights had written up before they went on crusade. It's basically, it's kind of like you write your will before you go on crusade. He went through these things, entered them all into a database, plotted them on a map, and what he came up with was this. The vast, overwhelming majority of knights who took the vow to go on crusade in 1095 were actually lords of their estates. They were actually not second sons, not people who had anything to gain by going on crusade. In fact, they were the people who had the most to lose in financial and economic terms by going on crusade. Uh, and what he also uncovered by his study of the charters was in fact that in order to provide for his participation in an expedition like a crusade, a knight would have to assemble four to five times his annual income right, in liquid assets. Now, we're talking about a non-monetarized economy. People don't have a lot of cash lying around. So how are you going to obtain the cash that amounts to four or five times your income in order to finance your participation in the crusade. Well, you're going to have to make enormous, enormous sacrifices, either selling off titles, selling off lands, settling disputes to your disadvantage. Right? You're basically going to have to liquidate a lot of your real wealth. Now, in the Middle Ages, much more so than today, real wealth is land. Right? In order to um, seriously finance your participation here, you're going to have to liquidate your actual real wealth, your land, assemble you know, this, this pile of money, spend it all on crusade, on your trip to the Middle East, right? Maybe not make it back alive, right? But if you do come back, you have very little to come back to, right? Which, it poses an interesting question for us, which is, what could have motivated these guys? You know, if financial gain is clearly not a motive, and it's not. It makes absolutely no sense to assert any more, based on the evidence that we have, that financial gain could have been a motive. Um, what was a motive? Well, maybe they were looking for estates in the Middle East, right? They were looking to carve out estates in Palestine for themselves, right? But that raises another question. Out of those who went on crusade and survived, what percentage of them returned home back to Western Europe? 99%. 
99%. So no one really had this ambition to carve out an estate in Palestine. So all of these other motives are off the table. What's the only motive that makes sense? The spiritual benefits, right? The fact that these guys genuinely believe that by participating in this crusade, po quite possibly losing their lives, they would genuinely actually receive the spiritual benefits that were promised them by the papacy, the remission of their sins. And so the enthusiasm with which the Knights of France respond to Pope Urban's call can be taken as a kind of a barometer of their faith, right? that the spiritual benefits promised them were actually something that they would receive. How much time do I have, 17? Am I, am I doing okay? Oh, yeah, you got about seven, eight. Seven, eight minutes. All right. Well, all right. So, 1095 at Claremont, Urban II issues this call to the Knights, right? Now, uh, in point of fact, Knights and well-qualified people aren't really the only ones who respond, right? No, unfortunately, a lot of people respond to Urban II's call for crusade who probably shouldn't have. Uh, in point of fact, Urban II's call generates so much enthusiasm in France that it generates some copycat preachers who are going around preaching crusade, right? One of these guys is a very colorful figure by the name of Peter the Hermit, who you may have heard of. Uh, Peter the Hermit's kind of this, this wild-eyed dude. Uh, he goes around France preaching crusade and assembles this kind of ragtag army of women, elderly people, uh, you know, not necessarily well-qualified warriors, the poor, beggars, these kinds of things. Um, and he announces that with this army, he's going to liberate Jerusalem. Right. At this point, however, other people have responded to the call. Other people have taken the crusade vow who are much better qualified. And some of these names you've probably heard of. Godfrey of Bouillon, Raymond the Count of Toulouse, Hugh of Vermondois, Bohemond the Great Norman of Southern Italy. Right. So uh, you have these great lords who are responding to the call for crusade on the one hand. On the other hand, you have these kind of less well-qualified people who are motivated by religious enthusiasm, right, but don't have that much of a military background. Yes? When the crusaders returned well, that's that's a, we'll, we will have to deal with that question because that's the biggest challenge. Is after they take Jerusalem, no one had thought of what they were going to do next. Yeah. Right. The assumption was the assumption at the beginning is if we take Jerusalem, it'll simply be returned to the Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the the working assumption that they had at the beginning. Then, for various reasons, the friendship between the Crusaders and the Byzantines sort of breaks down along the way. And so by the time they get to Jerusalem, they've lost the Byzantines, and then and they take Jerusalem and end, end up having to make provision for its defense on their own. It becomes the major challenge of the 12th century for the Crusaders is how to create a, a kind of a standing army that can be the backbone for defending the Holy Land. It's something that, that ultimately they do by means of the military orders. Uh, fundamentally, the, the Templars and the Hospitallers become the backbone for defense of the Latin kingdom, but it's something that's only done with great difficulty. Because knights from Western Europe, they want to go on pilgrimage, right? They want to go to Jerusalem, visit the Holy Sepulchre, right? And at this point, they definitely want to restore Jerusalem to Christian hands, but no one's really interested in, in creating a new life for themselves over there, right? So recruiting people to, to do that is their biggest challenge, and it turns out the military orders end up supplying for that. Um, so... In 1095, 1096, you have these two groups of people. And we're running out of time, so I'll make a long story very short. 
you, uh, you basically have two waves of the First Crusade that make their way to Constantinople. Right? Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, was going to be kind of the launching point for the First Crusade into the Muslim land in Anatolia. And the first wave that arrives is the wave led by Peter the Hermit. So they arrive, and the, the enthusiasts in Peter the Hermit's group actually have a very negative opinion of the knights and the, you know, the real leaders who are lagging behind, right? Because what they're saying is, you know, look at what the knights and, and the, the real serious leaders of the crusade are doing. What they're doing is blasphemous, because what they're doing is actually preparing, and that's a lack of trust in God. <laughs> God will give us the victory if we just go for it, right? And so Peter the Hermit tells this to Alexius, and Alexius says, you're nuts. <laughs> so Alexius is so convinced that Peter the Hermit is nuts that he won't provide the ships to transport Peter the Hermit and his ragtag army across the Bosporus right, until they get so rowdy that he has to. So Peter the Hermit's crowd gets so rowdy, Alexius says, fine, I wash my hands of it. He ships them across the Bosporus early in 1096. They go over there, meet some Turks, and they all get killed. Except Peter the Hermit. <laughs> Everyone else gets killed. So that's the story of the first wave. The second wave comes in in drips and drabs throughout the, the early part of the year 1096. But I think I'm running out of time here, so we'll, we'll kind of stop there. Right? Oh, you're right. You had a question. Okay. I thought you were talking about coming across and making their way to Constantinople, were they uh, doing the sacking of cities or anything like that? How were they, how were they surviving? Well, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a mixed bag, actually, in, in point of fact. They, um, as they're coming uh, across the Kingdom of Hungary, for example, you have to cross Hungary. And they get a bad reputation as they're crossing Hungary. I mean, you can imagine uh, an army. Peter the Hermit's army may have been around 100,000 people. Um, to carry enough food to walk 1,000 miles is very difficult, so you try to pick it up on the way. Uh, so, oh, that's a nice cow. That's a nice apple tree. That's a nice, you know, that's a, hey, let me, I'll, I'll take that. You know, it's, they get kind of a bad reputation. The first wave does, because they're just out of control. Then when the second wave comes across, uh, they actually are... are kept very strictly under control because the, the king of Hungary doesn't want to let them through. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the lords actually has to give his brother as a hostage to the king of Hungary for the safe conduct of the army as they go through. So they're a little bit better. Then when they get to Constantinople, things get a little bit rocky for various reasons again. But yet yeah, it's tough moving an army somewhere without causing havoc in your wake <laughs> as you go through. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good. That's actually a very good question. Yeah, and and the answer to that is, it, it seems largely yes. Uh, that that ultimately, the picture of medieval society that we have as some kind of totalitarian thing is a false picture. In point of fact, what we have is um, lords, for example, who are vassals of a king. You know, at least in the 11th century, the king doesn't have any real ability to stop. Them. You know, the vassals are in the house. Serfs. Right. Yeah, a lot of them are people who just go. 
Uh, I mean, you go, you, you take the vow in a moment of religious enthusiasm and you go. I mean, the, the climate is such that uh, people aren't really being prevented effectively from going, even when they shouldn't be. So did Peter basically go, uh, Peter the Hermit, go overland the nights as well, mostly Yes, yes. And on the first crusade... Yes, everyone goes overland to Constantinople. Then they actually they took a little boat ride across the Straits, and they went overland all the way to Jerusalem. Right, so the First Crusade is an entirely overland expedition. And the reasons for that are that just no one has enough ships. Uh, no, you, you don't have any one lord who's wealthy and powerful enough to have a massive fleet to transport everybody. Now that changes 100 years later on the Third Crusade. When Richard goes on crusade, he is wealthy and powerful enough for various reasons to finance the construction of a fleet. And so you have this, this sea expedition of Richard where they, they stop at Lisbon. They capture Lisbon in Portugal from the Muslims there. Uh, then they leave Lisbon, go to Sicily, and, and from Sicily they sail to Cyprus, capture Cyprus, and go to Palestine from there. Um, so yeah, but on the first crusade we're talking land all the way. Why don't we, why don't we just take a quick break like normal, and then for anybody that has any questions, we'll take about 30 seconds. Okay, I see, I see six hands, so, so we'll take all six. We'll go one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so you mentioned uh, that they were promised uh, all their sins being forgiven. Um, spiritually, that seems problematic to me. Has the church ever like, commented on that specifically in modern times or since then to say? Yeah, in fact, what the church did was they kind of refined the concept of what they meant yeah. by the forgiveness of sins. What, what they mean is effectively what we would call an indulgence. Yeah. Um, okay. So in other words, what, what, what they're saying is that there, there are other preconditions. To, it, it's not just you go rape and pillage and then if you die, you go to heaven. Right. Uh, contrition for your sins and, and all of that is kind of part of the whole package. It's supposed to be a penitential pillage. So if you do it in the spirit of the whole thing, then the benefit that's offered from the church's treasury of grace is the remission of all the temporal punishment due to your sins. Uh, and so as far as the church is concerned today, it's not really a problematic concept at all. Right, but they did def- further define it in that time? Or no, at, that time it, it, at that time, it was more loosely defined. In the 13th century, it becomes very strictly defined. Uh, because, well, in the 12th century, to just kind of simplify, the 12th century, you have the development of canon law as a discipline which led to the refinement of concepts like indulgences. And so by the 13th century, you get, in the reign of Innocent III, this mature notion of what a plenary indulgence really is. So. What was the structure of this first army? The structure of the First Crusade army? Uh, it was a very decentralized army. Uh, well, as you can tell from the fact that a bunch of them just kind of are off on their own. But even the army led by the lords, um, in, in effect, each lord had control of his own vassals and of no one else, right? So in other words, Raymond of Toulouse had control of his vassals, Godfrey of Bouillon had control of his vassals, Bohemond had control of his, Hugh of Vermandois had control of his, uh, Etienne de Bois had control of his, uh, you know, all, each of these guys would have control of his own group, right? And then they were supposed to kind of get together and work cohesively, which doesn't always happen. Uh, I mean, it definitely doesn't always happen, especially as they march and they go to Nicaea first, then to Antioch, and then to Jerusalem. And at Antioch is when all hell breaks loose in terms of the leaders arguing with one another. So the army ends up stalling at Antioch for a while because the leaders can't agree on this stuff. So yeah, it's a very decentralized structure. Yeah, 
may may have touched upon this before. When you said the commission of sin, you didn't use the term indulgence. And my question was, was it retrospective or prospective remission of sin? Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, like what I did before is is forgiven, or I can do anything I want in the future. Oh no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> No, no, no. It, it's, cer it's certainly not that. No, no one had that concept at all in the Middle it's, it's This was a concept that was, it was attached to pilgrimage before it was attached to crusade. Then it, it kind of gets piggybacked onto crusade because a crusade at its inception is meant to be a pilgrimage. Uh, and the idea was that going on a penitential pilgrimage was a way of, because it was so arduous, because it was so expensive, because it was so tough, because you might die, you know, because of all these things, it was a way of getting your temporal punishment due to your sins remitted, but not for future sins. There's, that's a very common misconception of what indulgences are, which very often our, our separated brethren have that idea that an indulgence is like a ticket that you can get to go commit sin, and that's absolutely <laughs> not what it is. So it's tied to having a genuinely contrite heart. Where is the next one? So what happens when the army of knights got to Jerusalem finally on the first of well, we'll talk about that more at length next time, but basically what happened was they... No, no, First Crusade takes Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah. It, to, to make a long story short, First Crusade leaves um, Constantinople in 1096. Uh, they march across um, Anatolia in, uh, well, it's really in 1097, I guess they march across Anatolia. Winter of 1097 to 1098, they're stuck in Antioch. They end up taking Antioch. It's sort of difficult. There's whole some backstories that, which have a lot of the most colorful stories of the First Crusade happened at Antioch. Um, then what happens is they, they end up getting stuck there until the spring. Of 1099, they leave the spring of 1099 and go down, and they're able to take Jerusalem uh, in the summer, in July. It's July 15th, 1099, that they they take Jerusalem. Now there, there is a, a whole kind of black legend of the Crusader capture of Jerusalem that there was a terrible sack where they massacred women and children and everybody, and the blood was running thigh deep through the streets and things like that. But the, based on the information that we really have from the historical sources, uh, it looks like there was, by, the, by the conventions of, of medieval warfare, uh, their treatment of the city was merciful. Uh, by the conventions of medieval warfare, if you took a city by storm, you were entitled to treat everyone inside as a combatant. It doesn't look like the Crusaders did that because a lot of prominent um, citizens of Islamic Jerusalem are able to um, ransom their, themselves, get themselves out of there. And so it looks like not that many people really were killed. But the problem is that Crusade chronicles that are bragging about the fighting to people back home are like, oh yeah, we killed so many people that we had you know, blood that was knee deep running through the streets and stuff like that. I mean, that's uh, just a physical impossibility. You would have had to kill millions of people to have blood that deep running through the streets of a big city like Jerusalem. So it, it's a metaphor. I mean, there was certainly violence, but it, it wasn't a systematic massacre or anything like that. So. Who or what was the organizing principle of the Turks, who were the opponents of the Byzantines? And how did the emphasis change from against the Turks to against the very good question. Um, the, there's a two-part answer to that. The, the first part is that the um, Turkish Empire around 1080 or so was very tightly united. It was called the Grand Seljuk Empire. Um, around mostly in Anatolia. 
Actually, at, at this point, it, around 1080 or so, it, it would have extended very far to the east. Um, what happened was around 1090, with the death of Malik Shah, what happens is the Turkish Empire falls apart and it turns into this decentralized patchwork of different states, one of which was in Anatolia. So you get, you get a little Seljuk Sultanate in Anatolia. And this decentralization of the Turkish Empire that occurs right around 1090 or so, it's extremely providential for the Crusaders. The Crusaders were only able to, to hack their way through Turkish territory because the Turkish Empire had fragmented into a thousand little pieces. Um, so at the time that the Crusaders are coming through, 1098, 1099, uh, the Turks are extremely disorganized. In point of fact, Jerusalem was, Jerusalem was captured in 1098 from the Turks by the Shiites. It's interesting. There's, there's a Shiite army from Egypt that captures Jerusalem in 1098, and then the Crusaders take it in 1099. From the Shiites? From the Shiites, yeah. And it's really funny because when the Shiites take Jerusalem, they know that the first crusade is on the march. So it, it, it's really funny. that They actually send a message up to the crusaders that says, hey, you don't have to come because we got it. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, so then as far as the, the shift of emphasis from focusing on the Turks in Anatolia to focusing on Jerusalem, that was part of Urban II's um, conception of the thing because what he realized was um, in terms of recruitment, uh, it, was, it was hard to recruit knights by telling them, go fight for Alexius. It was easy to recruit knights by telling them to go fight for Christ and go deliver Jerusalem. So f uh, from the perspective of recruitment, Jerusalem is a much more popular goal. Uh, and it also fits with the aims of the Gregorian reform, the, um, you know, with the devotion to relics. It, it taps into all the religious enthusiasm that the knights would have had, and it enables him to offer the spiritual benefits associated with pilgrimage, which were associated particularly with Jerusalem and the Holy Sepulchre. So for a variety of reasons, Urban kind of shifted the emphasis to Jerusalem, and that's what kind of turns the First Crusade into this, this massive outpouring of religious enthusiasm. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.